2: This is unbelievable. College basketball.
1: Incredible. You know they're going to try to run backdoor play if they can get it. Under 10. Backdoor. Here's Davis.
2: Davis for the win. He's got it. Princeton is going to the NCAA
0: tournament.
1: I'm here with Craig Robinson, longtime friend, uh, class of 83, graduate at Princeton, broadcaster, coach, father, brother, author, um, and most important for me, a good friend. And uh, Craig, welcome to the show. It's really uh, an honor to have you here.
2: Well, I should say, first of all, who's that guy you're talking (laughs) about? (laughs) No, Mitch, it's uh, thank you for having me on this very first podcast. I couldn't tell you how excited I was when I I, I told my wife, Kelly, that you were going to do this and we were going to do this podcast. And I've been giddy the whole time. And uh, for those of the folks out there who don't know, it's Memorial Day weekend, reunion weekend,
1: and I've got a house full of people, and I'm right here with you. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Well, that's where we want you. And, you know, um, you and I got a chance to get to know each other later in life for, for you. But for me, it was sort of fresh out of college. I was a young assistant at Northwestern, and we got started there in 2000 together. And, um, you know— I'd like to go back even further, if you don't mind. And, um, you know, I mentioned, you know, your your sort of background in Chicago. But first you were, you know, the son of Frasier and, and Marianne Robinson. And I, I, when we first started working together, we spent a lot of time on the road. And I heard all these great stories, which I'd like to talk about. But tell me about your parents and what it was like growing up, um, you know, in that household.
2: Yeah, well, it was... Fantastic in a word, uh, but you can't use a word to describe how I felt growing up, and you really don't know the full extent of it until you become an adult. You and I both have families now, wife and kids, and you and you know when you have kids, you know what it meant to grow up in a household like I did. And uh, just to give you an idea, uh, m- my dad uh, worked for the city of Chicago, didn't go to college. Uh, he had MS from his— What was he doing for the city? He worked as a—it state. was called a stationary fireman, but in the water department, there were guys who looked out for the boilers that they used to generate the energy for the water pressure. That was his job. And he went every day, and as I mentioned, he had MS, and from the time I can remember, he walked with a limp, it got progressively work, w- worse— But he got up and went to work every single day. And I don't remember. I remember him missing a day because he got the flu when I was really young. And I thought the world was coming to an end. And then the next time he missed work was when he (laughs)
1: passed away about 25 years ago. I remember you talking about, I mean, it seems like knowing you how much he has influenced your life, but watching him put his shirt on in the mornings and how long that took him. Yeah. Early. He would have to get up just to get dressed. I mean, each sort
2: of every few years I could see him struggling more and he would get up earlier and earlier because it took him a long time to get dressed. And he was not the type who would ask for help, but who needed help. He Mm -hmm. did it all all uh, on his own. Um, And I just remember waking up with him in the mornings and watching him get ready. And it was like a normal childhood when you're next to your dad at the sink and he's shaving and getting ready. I, I was standing there right next to him and, uh, you know, he never asked for any extra help. Uh, so that 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 was my dad. And then my mom was a, a homemaker all the way up until my sister and I got into high school. Then she went back to work as a secretary And the real thing that I remember about our upbringing um, was that there was just a whole lot of unconditional love in the house that sort of buoyed everybody up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's the first. What was that
1: like? And what what do you mean?
2: Well, and it showed itself in many different ways. I mean we didn't have a lot of money, but we never felt like we were poor. We did things like go to the drive-in, and we did things like have these wonderful Christmases. Our parents participated in all of our school activities. My mom was up, up at our school all the time, contributing her time and her effort, not just to Michelle and I, but to the, all the kids in, in our respective classrooms. So, you know, it's not always about what they can provide for you material, materialistically, but that was, that was part of it. I mean, you know, one of the fondest memories I had was that every single Friday night, no matter how tough things were, and, and they were tough at times Uh, I didn't know it at the time, but we would have a treat for dinner on Friday. And that treat could be pizza. It could be McDonald's when it first opened up. I mean, going to McDonald's back then was like (sighs) going to a a four-star restaurant. And every Friday, my dad would act as if my mom had so much work all week that she needed Friday night off from preparing dinner. And uh, it was just one of those
1: things that— made you feel like you weren't poor mm-hmm. yeah no it's I, I, I remember uh, one of my favorite stories that I've actually stolen and told a couple times um, on, you know and talked to recruits is your dad uh, came home with his paycheck in cash once and um, talk, tell me that story real quick I, I just think oh, it's this, was, this, this was this was
2: a great story A great move, a great parental move. And I cannot wait to do it with my own (laughs) kids. But I didn't have any idea about the value of money. I knew how to count money and I knew how to spend it, but I didn't know the value of it, which uh, a lot of kids nowadays growing up, they don't, they get a lot of education, but not a lot of financial education. So some kid at school said, hey, Craig, you know what, you're rich, you know, and we, we probably were fighting over something. And he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a rich kid. And I was like, hmm, I thought to myself, maybe we are rich. And I just <laughs> didn't know it. And I I did what I typically would do when somebody would say something I wasn't sure about. I went right to my dad and I said, dad, he came home from work. And I, I almost remember it as if it was yesterday. It was hot out, It was a nice, hot summer day. He had come home. He was tired, but he was never too tired to have a discussion or play ball. And I said, Dad, are we rich? And my dad never reacted too quickly. This is one of the things that I learned about him that I used in my coaching later and in my parenting. You never react too quickly Mm -hmm. because you don't know how it's going to affect your kids. And he said to me, he's like, Why? What made you ask that? And I said, well, this kid at school said that we were rich. And I just want to know, are we rich? And he said, well, you know what? I'm not going to answer that right now. I'm going to show you. And I said, let's talk about this. He said, let's talk about this on Friday. And Friday was when he got his paycheck. Mm -hmm. So he got his paycheck that Friday in cash. Cash money, cash, whatever it was. Let's just use $100 for a round amount. And he laid it out on the bed in felt fifty. Like, felt like, 20s. A thousand, like a million dollars. I, to I give. was <laughs> and the first thing out of my mouth was, We are rich. <laughs> and he said, No, nah, no, nah, wait a minute, wait a minute. Now you have to pay rent and rent is thirty dollars a month. And so he took thirty dollars out. And then I was like, Nice, okay. We got a lot of money left over. He's like, "Ah, ah, wait, what else do you need? And I said, well, you got to buy groceries and this and that. And so he said, okay, groceries. And he said, you think that car out there is is free. You have to pay each month on the car. And all of this, all these things are going through my brain. And he slowly but surely, to make a long story short, gets down to the very end. And he's gone through the bills, the electric bill, the phone bill, the car note. And there's. 20 bucks left. And I said, man, 20 bucks, that's still a lot of money. And he's like, wait, don't forget Friday night pizza, you and Michelle's allowance. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of it, there was about $8 left. Yeah. And I, as you know, remember that story and tell it all the time, yeah. because it was such a, it did a couple of things. First of all, it made me understand at a very young age the value of the things that are around you and the things that you are fortunate enough to to have in your life. But secondly, it helped me to be able to help others understand that the— because one of the first things he did when he said, well, there's rent— He said, right after the rent and the car note, he said, you have to pay yourself first. Mm -hmm. And he put money into the savings and it was, you know, $10 or 10% or whatever it was. It taught me the value of saving Mm -hmm. and paying your, I I always called it paying yourself because that's how he said, you got to pay yourself. And that is such a, a novel concept and, and, and such a, it's so
1: plain and simple that it, it goes over people's heads all the time. Yeah, I, I've always enjoyed that story so much. And also I think, you know, um, knowing your family, it, it, it it's one of those stories that it makes a lot of sense when you get to know you guys. And, you know, talk about, if you don't mind, being this being a Hoops podcast in some ways, but we both are on the same boat in terms of, um, you know, the person is defined by the game and the game defines the person. But talk about Mount Carmel, going to school there, your coach, um, and how that influenced you.
2: Yeah, well... I went to, as you said, Mount Carmel High School, and that wasn't my first introduction to basketball. I actually got started playing biddy basketball and had a really good AAU coach named Johnny Gage, who was not much older than we were, who started me on basketball. And then I went to Mount Carmel and played for a couple of different coaches. But I had this one, my my sophomore year, I played on the sophomore team and Father Mike, uh, was Father Michael Keefe was my coach. And it was the first time in my life I had ever had a priest as a coach. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I I learned from him that I remember was every now and then I'd be waiting for my bus. I took a city bus to get to school And the reason why I I didn't go to my neighborhood school and I went to a Catholic school, my parents were very big on education. Mount Carmel would provide the best education. And what was your neighborhood? For me, it was uh, South Shore in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, when I first moved in, it was predominantly black neighborhood with a few white folks in there. And by the time I went to high school, it was probably 100% uh, black and Hispanic. And what is it now? Uh, it is the same mm. and, and 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 my mom still lives in the house that I grew up in, so um and the and there's a high school right nearby there South Shore high School, which wasn't the best at the time, and I ended up going to Mount Carmel, but I would take a city bus and uh Father Mike would come by once a week, the timing of him coming by uh my neighborhood. He saw me, picked me up and would give me a ride to school one day. But what I didn't realize was that and I I, as you know, I'm an early riser. I even back then I got to school (laughs) earlier than I should have. He was coming from a grammar school where he would do mass even before he'd come to our school and Coach basketball, teach English, and do mass at our school and uh it just it was one of those things that just struck you about how much people do for others, and no one knows it yeah. I mean he never talked about the many things that he did for other people that wasn't being a basketball coach or that wasn't at Mount Carmel high school
1: yeah no i mean i <clears throat> it's uh it's it's amazing isn't it like when you you know the, the story leading up to your arrival at Princeton is is so layered, and um, you know it's one of the things that I enjoy hearing about and talking about. So you know, going you, then, the, the, how did you get to Princeton? You know, and then, well, you know.
2: that that's this is one of my very favorite stories because it was one of those things that I, I don't want to say it was serendipitous, but it it there was a there was a high likelihood that I wasn't going to Princeton, and uh, first and foremost. Princeton was the only school I applied to. Every other school I was getting recruited to play, so I didn't apply to any other schools. And why was that? Well, when you come from my background where neither one of your parents went to college, you're just thinking going to college. You weren't thinking of—I certainly wasn't thinking of going to an Ivy League school. Mm. As a matter of fact— I let's let's take a step back before I made the decision. I didn't go. I didn't even know about Princeton other than watching the Flintstones when they did uh Princeton and Princeton. Shale. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was all I knew about the Ivy League. I knew I I had some in the in, in the they call it blogosphere now or in the in the in the nether regions of my mind, I had heard of Princeton. You know, things haven't changed that much. Some <laughs> kids we talked
1: to, you know, where do you know any much about Princeton? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Like New Jersey. Yeah, Central, Are you kidding me? Yeah. So, um, but a, a former Princeton grad was running a basketball camp, and I went to it, and uh, Coach Tony Relvis, who was the assistant mm-hmm. to Coach Carrill when I was in high school, saw me play. And this guy who ran the camp and it was a top one hundred camp in the in the Midwest and I played well and he said, This kid's got grades and sort of that was the introduction. Well I subsequently go on a visit to the school and Coach Garrill does what Coach does does and he told me why I was a bad basketball player and I was like huh, this, uh, this is interesting this is the only player the only person who's ever told me what I need to work
1: right, on which is common for what he used to do it's
2: to a just lot of people abs- now I know that mm. and, and it's a shame that it doesn't work as much now I mean p- kids nowadays I feel are missing out because they want to be with somebody who's just
1: going to tell them right. the good stuff I, I remember distinctly uh, you can't trouble with your left hand you're an okay shooter but we'd like to have you yeah, and I remember telling that story, thinking it was just me, but pretty much every
2: it was guy. every it was all of yeah. us, and he and the and the, he got you with, but we'd like to have you. Like that was, him. and it was such a great sales pitch because it's like here's a guy who wants me, warts and all, and uh, so it was a novel approach. But I had a wonderful recruiting trip here, and this was this was uh, I I. Stayed with John Rogers, who yeah. was a fellow Chicagoan. Yeah, who, so
1: John Rogers, class of 1980, who at the time was either going to be the captain of the team. And, uh, and yeah, it, uh, he, he was. He was
2: already because the season was. I can't remember if the season was over. No, it was probably the start of the season because you, yeah. did, you didn't you yeah. did do trips as a junior. Yeah. So it was yeah. the
1: fall of my senior year. Okay. And I do want to talk about John because he's played a big part in your life yeah. and also mine. And John's been very influential on a lot of Princeton basketball alums' lives and also Princetonians. Yeah, yeah, he sure has. And so I ended up staying
2: with him, Steve Mills. Randy Melville, who are both Princeton grads, 1981, were on the team. Rachman Kareem was on the JV team. He's class of 80. William Murphy was class of 82. Uh, he was trying out for the team. All of these guys ended up being my friends for life. And I had the best recruiting trip. Now, let's jump ahead to the spring where you have to make your decision. And now I'm being recruited by the University of Washington, which was the Pac-8 back then, University of Texas Arlington, Division I, but who knew a University of Texas Arlington? And then very, very lightly by Kentucky State University, Um, those three schools. You didn't know that that was going to be used against you later at your time here? I I had no idea (laughs) because, as you know, Coach Carrill used to use that against me. The only other school who was recruiting you was Texas Arlington. And you always used Texas Arlington. I was like, Coach, University of Washington was recruiting me too. But that's that's another <laughs> yeah. story for another time. So we 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 lived in this very small one-bedroom house, and we had our kitchen and where we ate dinner was the same place. We didn't have a dining room. So my mom was doing the dishes and very typical after dinner banter going back and forth and my dad my mom's doing the dishes with her back to me my dad's across from me and he says so well what do you think what do you what do you think in school wise and I said and I was very ready for this discussion and I said well dad I think I'm going to the University of Washington and my dad did what dads do when you make the wrong decision He paused. And now for the audience out there, you can't see this because he didn't say a word, but I'm lifting my head up so that my neck is showing. And he stroked his neck (laughs) a few times. And that was what he did when he was very disappointed. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? And then he put his chin to his chest and started sort of rubbing his chin against his chest, shaking it left to right. (laughs) Right. And I'm trying to think of, what have I done wrong? And he very calmly says, well, tell me, how did you come to this decision? And I said, well, the University of Washington has a great engineering program. At the time, I thought I was going to be an engineer. I said, it's in a pack eight. It's a great conference. And I think I could be able to play by the time I'm a junior. Mm -hmm. And the last but not least, and and. The the Princetonians out there know this, but the non-Princetonians don't or may not. Princeton didn't offer scholarships. So I said, and I can go for free. And what my father, who worked hard his whole life, said to me was, well, if you pick your school based on how much I have to pay, I'm going to be very disappointed. And... When he said something like that, it resonated. When he was disappointed, the whole house was disappointed. I mean, you know, here's a guy who has done everything for us and you never wanted to disappoint him. So he said to me, he said, why don't you think about it and come back and we'll talk tomorrow. And the next day, the whole thing plays out almost exactly the same. And I said, well, Dad, you know, I actually I I, I, I actually did like Princeton the best. And he said, fine, you'll go. And that <laughs> <Done>. was it. <laughs> You're done. And he wouldn't let me out of that one statement. That was all that could come out of my you know, mouth. It's so
1: interesting. I, you know, I, I do think about that a lot too. You know, the conversations today with kids aren't that different. But um, you know, I find I hear a lot more. Um, well, we whatever, whatever he wants, we'll support him. And um, I do think there's a there's a shared sort of moment with parents and the kids that we do recruit now, <clears throat> where, um, you know, the the kids that have really thrived here, they they have, uh, there's a parent in their ear, there's somebody in their ear saying, this is the right place for you. And, and the kid kind of knows it.
2: Yeah. And I think where we where we're missing out a lot on is that parents are scared to tell their kids what the right or wrong decision is, or give their opinion, even though it doesn't actually agree with them. I think we do our kids a disservice because that's what parenting is. Parenting is guidance and counsel and you can't do that by being completely objective. You you it's very subjective when it when when your children are involved. So I I applaud the fact that my parents sort of aimed me in the right direction.
1: Right because well and and I can't tell you how many kids I know that um you know look it's It's a it's a sacrifice for a family, but also sometimes a kid just wants to do the right thing for his family. And it's it it requires a little bit of a nudge saying, "Okay, we're going to be okay." Right. And so let's talk about what you're at Princeton. Um, You know, for those of you that don't know, you know, you're I, I used to always joke that when you're sitting in a car when you and you used to drive a kind of a bigger SUV when I first met you. You know, you might think that you're about 5'11", and you step <laughs> right. out of the car because the torso is, you know, you're proportionally you're built very well for basketball. You have seven-foot-long wingspan, um, two-time Ivy League player of the year, just a terrific career at Princeton. Um, but go back to the beginning, arriving on campus and your first exposure to the program, some of the players that were there, and Coach Carroll.
2: Yeah, well, I can I can remember the first day like it was yesterday because there was no—what the, the, we all do now, and I, I've done it for my kids, driving them to school and getting them set up. There wasn't any of that because we couldn't afford it. So my first day, I had a suitcase and a duffel bag, and I landed at Newark Airport, took the bus that you could get from Newark that dropped you off right on Nassau Street, and I got off. And I have this stuff, and I'm wondering, what the heck do I do now? And you just sort of figure it out. And I got to tell you, Mitch, that if I didn't have the support system of the basketball team, I might not have made it at mm. Princeton.
1: Yeah.
2: And I say that because, you know, this place is full of top-notch everything, whether it's a basketball player, a student, a pianist, everybody has something that they do extremely well, along with some other stuff that they got going on for them where they're really good at it. And, you know, when you're coming from the south side of Chicago and, you know, you're you know, I was never much of a studier. I was more of a test taker. I could, I could, I can sort of get by. It was very daunting that first year. And then on top of it, you got Coach Carrill telling you how you're probably not going to make the team. And I was thinking, well, I thought I was on the team once I said I was coming. Right. And, and you, it was, and
1: you got recruited. By oh Texas my, Arlington. yeah, That's all. yeah. Well, oh. it's you know, it's it's interesting, you know. It, you have a daughter here now, and you know it's. I would imagine you've talked to her. It's it's pretty different, and uh, the the exposure to the place is presented differently, and which I think is a really not that it was bad. Yeah, but,
2: um, yeah. You know. I, I just it's just different. I mean, there it is. Princeton has learned how to be more welcoming mm-hmm. for. All types and not and I don't mean just all types racially, but socioeconomically and, uh, you know, international students, uh, ADA students. I mean, it's just uh, I think Princeton is always on the forefront of getting better. Um, But when I look back on on my days here playing basketball, when I thought that I wasn't good enough or I wasn't smart enough or <clears throat> wasn't likable enough to fit in, I always had that support system of the basketball team. And, and it's really, it, it really shows now. At the time, I didn't realize it when I saw all these alums coming back, especially on the basketball team. I didn't understand it until I had gone through it a couple of years, and I realized that now all of these guys knew who I was not just the guys I went to Damn. school. So you have this culture of support and culture of excellence and culture of success that gave me a self-confidence that you I think that a lot of young people need, especially when they're in college, because that's a that people think you're already developed. I think you are, but from a self-esteem
1: standpoint, you're still f- trying to figure oh, yeah. out who you are. We definitely know that, you know, when you graduate from here you think you've got it all figured out, but usually when you figure it out it's time to graduate. But you know, we just bumped into TJ Bray on the way over here, who's back for reunions weekend, and that's one of the things it's harder to put your finger on when you're describing the place to somebody, but you know who he is, you know, he's a good player here, twenty fourteen yeah. graduate. He's playing professionally in Italy. Right. But also just the connectivity between former players. Yeah. Um, and how we'll do any anything for each other. Um, Let's go back to John Rogers really quickly, if you don't mind, and, and uh, you know, because when you got here, John was a senior, um, and then talk about your relationship with John, because it's been a powerful relationship for you.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's 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 probably one of my longest relationships because you know, outside of the guys I went to high school with and it's only a couple of those guys that I stay in touch with but as I mentioned I first met John on my recruiting trip here and he has been a dear dear friend and mentor the entire time because I only got a year to play with him he was a senior when I was a freshman and and. Watching him because, you know, John was the captain of the team and started his first game of his senior year and then his playing time tailed off and watching him navigate through Coach Carrill and that whole situation. I always admired how he came to work every day, playing hard and trying to contribute to the team, whether he was on the court or off the court, in practice, out of practice. And so, obviously, we stayed in touch, and John went into the finance business early. And when I was done playing, you know, I was fortunate enough to get drafted and play overseas. And when I was done playing, I asked—John was the person I asked, what should I do now? I have no idea mm-hmm. how to go about doing anything. And, and he,
1: people are still doing that with yeah, John.
2: and and he's still providing yeah. fantastic advice and counsel to—
1: Anybody, but especially
2: Princeton grads and Princeton basketball. He's always grads. available,
1: and it's really an incredible trait of his that um, you know he'll check in with me during the season when you know if you if you have a tough loss or a moment when you're um, he just checks in. Yeah, he's calling to say hi. And, yeah, and it's been it's been a a, a relationship that
2: I've really. Sort of leaned on over the years. I mean, he's the reason I got into the investment in banking, the the investment world first and foremost. And then uh, you know we've played we played on men's leagues teams together. You and
1: I have played on three on three teams with him together teams, which has been one of John's passions outside of you know working at Ariel for years. And um, you know it was that's where. And, and where I've I sort of got into your orbit once you and I started working together, but one of the teams that we played on was Kit Arnie Duncan, um, who you know Brian Earl oh, and you yeah. and John was a coach, and um, you know, I was sort of on the tail end of that a little bit, but th- those are incredible times together as, as you get older, you know we, we talk about this a lot where you're spoiled, a little bit spoiled playing the way we played, but um, it was always John's passion. For to, to play the right way, you know, it's get carried over.
2: That's right, Mitch, and and it 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 was almost as if he he felt the need to pass it along to the rest of the world that this is how good players should play because if they played this way, they would be even better. And it we we uh, it mean it were t- ten fifteen years of playing three on three basketball and pickup basketball. But but really the the friendship and the um, uh, the guidance that John has provided over the years to all of, you know, both Princeton men and women pl- basketball players has been uh, tremendous for the program and
1: for Princeton. Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to just jump ahead a little bit. And uh, but first, you know, so Michelle, after you're a student here, you know, comes and visits and sort of introduced to Princeton because of, you know, your your introduction to Princeton. And, um, you know, you've, I've seen you speak publicly for a long time. You're very good at it. You have a very good ease about you when you're speaking. And, um, you know, I know that that's probably a natural part of you, but you've worked at it. So describe to me, if you could, um, what it was like introducing your sister at the 2008 Democratic National Convention in August and sort of set the stage for me and you know, again, I'm jumping ahead, but I think it's a good segue from you know your time at Princeton and so how things how much things had evolved for you and for her in in 2008.
2: Yeah, well, you know it, it and let me let me just address the her going to Princeton because there's yeah, a good story sure. behind that. Um, you know, she applied to University of Illinois. She she did more applying to schools than I did, but she applied to Princeton and. She told her guidance counselor at her high school that she'll apply to these other schools because she has to, but she knows that she's going to Princeton. And the guidance counselor said, are you kidding? This is one of the hardest schools in the world to get in. What makes you think you're just going to get into Princeton? She said, well— I'm a much better student than my brother is. And he's at Princeton already. So I know I'm getting <laughs> it. and And, and it, it's absolutely true. There's no bragging at that whatsoever. I mean, I couldn't be more proud of the way she attacks her, her education and her work. And I mean, she was all, she was a, almost a perfectionist. So not to, much has changed. And, we know and her now. not much has changed. and, and you know, to, to, to be able to and forget about her potentially being the first lady at the time, I was just absolutely over the moon excited that I could introduce my little sister and tell a few stories that would hopefully make people laugh, make people think and make mm-hmm. people cry and and
1: and just get to know her in that short bit of time. And uh, and what was it like being? Michelle's older brother for a long time, and then then you're so, and then you're Michelle's brother,
2: yeah, and not so, Craig Robinson. Yeah, well, it, it it you know for her entire life up until that point, she was Craig's little sister. Always was. She she'd go to basketball games. Hey, you're Craig's little sister. Hey, how you doing? You know, you're Craig's sister. You're Craig's sister. You're Craig's sister. And then I stand up in front of all those people and on TV, and I introduce her. And then she gives one of the best speeches I've ever heard at a, a Democratic National Convention. But I am a little biased. And I go in a split second from being—from her being Craig's little sister to me being Michelle Obama's big brother. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't have been happier for it. And it's been—it's it's been just a, a wonderful ride. But the 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 introduction itself— was and and I got to I've gotten to introduce her a lot since then, but that first one was really near and dear to my heart because it was, it really gave me a chance to brag on my little sister. Bad.
1: I remember, you know, we haven't ever talked about this because you know, those of us that were close to you, it was during those moments in the run up to the 08 election and even the 2012 election, but really the run the 2008 election. It was stressful it was uh, you know and, and and intense and i remember <clears throat> um during the inauguration there's a dinner and I, I i can't remember the name of the dinner but you're there and uh president obama is walking by you and at that point you know for you he was he was barack right he was michelle's husband and i remember distinctly there's a great shot of you. you stand up and you're like mr president how are you you know yeah, and, yeah. um could you describe a little bit of what that transition was like for from your perspective
2: well it's it it was is and probably always will be surreal i mean let me tell you mitch it's been seven and almost a half years not that i'm counting but uh and it is still mind-boggling every time i sort of try and wrap my arms around the fact that my sister's the first lady and my brother-in-law is the president of the united states and Uh, You know, we spend Thanksgiving and different family times at the White House. And, you know, my two younger kids have no idea who their uncle really is. They just know him as Uncle Barack. I mean, as a as a as an example, my six year old is in kindergarten. And when we told him that Uncle Barack won't be president after next year, you know what he said? He didn't cry and he didn't ask if he could why he wouldn't be able to go back to the White House. You know what he said? He said, so which one of my uncles is going to be president next? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, That's a classic six-year-old comment.
2: Which uncle it. is going to be president next? It's like, sorry, this isn't a family business, but uh, it, it just is. It, it's, it's been an honor. you know. I want to say that um, um, to watch them operate and serve the country the way they have and um But it it is one of those things that it, it, you know, if we were a political family and sort of were used to this and people were raised to do this, I might feel differently. But it is, um, it's it's almost shocking
1: every time I go through those gates. Yeah, I can't imagine. You know, you were were a coach, we were assistants together, and then you became a head coach and You know, did did you feel like um, as a head coach, you it prepared you in some way for understanding what she was going through on a smaller level? Or did you feel? Oh,
2: yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, any kind of, uh, you know, I think any kind of managerial position you can sort of uh, extrapolate because what you're what you're really in the business of is people. Yeah. And it's just that our decisions you win and lose games his decisions are much bigger and yeah. th- things can happen that affect a whole lot of people and i've always i've always been an admirer of the president's way of dealing with stress and it's very similar to the way you and i deal with stress he works out and he watches basketball <laughs> i mean it's just it's it's and it in and now He's got to deal with some heavy, heavy stuff, and 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 so it, it, I think being close to the president has made me have a better outlook on uh, uh, what I do. Yeah. There's a lot more important things out there than winning games, yeah. and I'm not saying that that's the winning games part of coaching. I don't think there's anything more important than what you're doing in so in in opening up the lives of these young men that you coach. There's not enough talked about there. Everybody's talking about players getting paid and everybody somehow taking a bite out of this gigantic golden goose. And you, you, you miss out on the fact that most of these basketball players and student athletes are not going, this is their last chance at being in a sport. And uh, you're probably the last person who's not paying them Who's sort of guiding them? Because the next stop is work, and that's the
1: real world. Yeah. Well, I, you make you make a good point that um, that it's easy to talk about now because here we are, sort of on the cusp of reunions weekend here at Princeton, and you get a lot of alums coming back, but also a lot of former players. And I think you and I would both agree. We sort of, you know, what I want for my current guys is what we had: um, great, significant, meaningful relationships with the guys on your team you know, a chance to to play meaningful basketball and hopefully, you know, let it carry on for forever. And then use use your, you know, what you learn here to to carry on to the next steps. Um, You're now currently broadcasting with ESPN, Craig. And um, talk about, if you don't mind, you know, what's that like compared to coaching? Because I've always had this thing in my head about a lot of coaches watch games, listen to the broadcasters and think, I could do that. And I've always felt like and we've talked about this briefly, but there's it, a lot more to it. And um you're now I think going into year 2 and um it's it's tough and you've did you did a significant number of games a year ago. Uh, you know, walk me through what that's like. Well, first of all, I was one of those guys
2: who thought I would never be a broadcaster because I didn't think that a lot of them could understand my team and what I was trying to do. They were just calling a game. But once I had the opportunity to audition and try it out, I thought, you know, this is very hard to do, and I need to give these guys more benefit of, more of the benefit of of the doubt. What's hard about it? And I'll, I'll tell you what's hard. Well, first of all, you are preparing not as if you're coaching against the one team. So you're not focused on one team. You're focused on both teams. And as a result, you're focused on the entire conference that you're working in or calling the game in, which could be a different, and especially in the non-conference could be to, 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 com, totally, completely different conferences. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of preparation. And there is a, ton of preparation that goes into being prepared and so that that's that's one thing the other thing is talking about basketball in short bursts while you're trying to describe a game for people that they're watching is an art you have to it's a learned uh, it's 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 learned behavior. Very few people I've seen are naturals at it, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been extremely fortunate working at ESPN with a uh, uh, group of uh, producers and and play by play people and directors who have embraced helping me get better. And the way you get better is by doing reps. So if 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 I'm watching a game with my team and it's that color man's first time doing it, he's not going to sound good. He's not going to sound like Jay Billis. Yeah. Jay Billis has been doing this for 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a, a lot that goes into the preparation side. Then you have to have a knowledge of what the other teams are doing. So I spend a lot of time on the day before the game, getting into town and hopefully going to the practice right. of the home team. And if the away team is going to practice that night, I try and go to their practice as well.
1: And I bet that would be interesting from you know your perspective as a head coach. Like what what have you what have you seen that you liked and what you didn't like? Exactly.
2: And I mean, I've I've I have a list, a file at home that I keep with all the things in my next job that I will do differently, all the things that I wouldn't, I would do the same, and then some things that I would want to try that I've never tried and things that I've, I, I just absolutely would never do. So and what,
1: and as you watch the college game, do you see the game, you know, as it has a, is it growing do you, how do you see it sort of transition? Because you're, you know, like... Um, When you're coaching a team, you're really like locked in. You're in the trenches with your own staff and your players and the recruiting sort of front. But you're getting an opportunity to see the way a lot of different people do it. And we all know there's a lot of different ways to do this. There there are different ways of success. There are a
2: ton of ways of doing it. But to get to your question on where I'm seeing the game going is I'm seeing it move away from player development, which is what we always learn playing and coaching and, and, and getting coached by Princeton coaches, you know, I always tell people, you know what the Princeton offense is? The Princeton offense is unselfishness and player development. If you think about being unselfish on the court and you think about how you have to develop as a player, that's really the foundation of the backdoor cuts and the being able to make shots and all that stuff. Um, what I'm seeing is that there is less emphasis on player development and more emphasis on getting the type of guys you can get that'll help you win right away and that's a, just a function of the way the business is because if you don't win and you're in three years four years tops
1: you're going to get fired yeah. and they're going to give another guy a chance so it's funny you mentioned that so Barkley came out recently within the last couple of weeks and sort of blasted a little bit of the style of play and it was a lot of talk about um, what Jordan's teams have beaten the current Warriors team and Barkley's point was like that doesn't really matter. The point is, it's just it's just bad basketball. Which is, you know, the Warriors are arguably that sort of, you know, one of the better teams. They're in a little trouble right now, but um, I think what he was trying to say was development. It's not the same, you, you know. You've you screen and roll, driving kicks. It's just It's a different game.
2: Yeah, and it may be more uh, exciting to folks who like high-scoring games and want to see a lot of possessions. But for those of us who think we can defend that, it would be interesting to see, and we're starting to see it with OKC, mm-hmm. that – what happens if you keep these guys from making three point shots? What do they have to do next and that was that's one of the things about Princeton basketball that I've always loved and i've and and that I think coach Carrill gets and coach Carmody subsequently get very little credit for is how we always were prepared but if for for some reason we ran up against somebody who was prepared for us, we had an alternate Plan that we could go to, or that the coaching staff would come up with either in game or for the next time you were playing, and uh, and I think that's what's what's getting lost in this day and age. I mm-hmm. mean, forget like I, I'm I'm with Barkley. Forget about who's better. It's just you know, my, I I I want to be the guy that Coach Carroll was. Here are the things that you need to work on. Why don't you work on it? Because ultimately, coaching is teaching, and that's why I got into this. is because I enjoy teaching people yeah. and sharing the things that I was fortunate enough to
1: learn from a bunch of people going all the way back to my mom and dad. You, you mentioned coaching, and um, I found it. You know, you, your daughter Leslie is a sophomore; she's going to be a junior next year. Talk about if you you know explain kind of what it was like being you know forever. You're you're on the one side, right? We're talking. We're selling. The school, we're selling ourselves, we're discussing with recruits and with families the things that we think are, that they should be thinking about. You're on the other side of it. Your daughter's getting recruited. What what was that like? And then what's it like watching her and being in the stands, uh, you know, wearing orange and black? Well, let me just
2: say, when I came to Princeton, it's probably the same for you. It might not have been for you because I think you had some family members who went here. I didn't know what the word legacy meant. I heard that word when I came to Princeton, and I was like, huh, I wonder, what do they mean by legacy? And I always thought it was sort of a a, a tradition of just sort of coming to Princeton. I didn't have any idea what a legacy was. And now that Leslie is a legacy, I'm almost embarrassed that I didn't know what it was before, but it it is, uh, it, it just gives me a really warm feeling and Uh, knowing that I had such a good experience here and that she chose this. And might I say I couldn't I couldn't pull the Frazier Robinson and tell her I was disappointed if she picked the wrong school, because, you know, it's a little bit different when you've gone to to a school and you have played basketball there. and And then I have a daughter who's playing and getting recruited by the same school. I didn't want her to feel like she had to pick Princeton because I went to Princeton. And then, you know, my daughter was also very conscious of the fact that my sister went here and, you know, you'll see with Pippa as she gets older with daughters, you if you're the dad and you tell her what to do, she's going to go in the other direction. So, you know, I had to lay like a bear trap there and let her step right into <laughs> it. But I couldn't have been more excited when uh, I tell you, Courtney Banghurt wanted to recruit her and she recruited Leslie like Leslie needed to be recruited and so that part was easy I just stayed out of the way mm-hmm. but being able to go to watch their games and watch them play and watch them practice that's been a real treat and you know I, I've i said to you and I've said to Courtney because people ask me all the time you know you know, wouldn't you love to coach that team? Talking about Courtney's team, I said, are you kidding me? I don't want to coach that team. I want to be on that team. Yeah,
1: yeah. That, they, the, the, you know, a year ago, you know, when they had that sort of great run, Leslie was a freshman, they were, you know, they were pounding teams, and there was just a magic about that group. They, um, I think a lot of people around here, you know, it was, it was so fun to be around that group as they headed into the tournament. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, it was a really special Really season. a treat, really a yeah. treat. And you mentioned Courtney too. Like that's doesn't surprise me to hear that. You know, she has a way of. You know, I think. You know what, what's the expression? Sell ice to an Eskimo. I mean, yeah. she really yeah. she can do it, I and mean, she's and and she really understands what each girl needs.
2: Yeah, and, and and I've just found at least for in Leslie's case, and I'm I'm sure this is the case for a lot of girls. She's found the right coach for her. Soul, mm-hmm. you know her personality, her being. It's it's uh, it's just great, and you just see her face light up when she comes home, and she's excited to always go back. And you know, it it, it now I know how my parents felt when they were sending
1: me off to yeah, Princeton. I bet you that, I bet you that feels good. Um, you, when, you know, I, when we worked together. I had a, I, I sort of came up with a nickname for you and called I called you the Edge. Yes. And I wanted to go back and uh, go back to that a little bit because, you know, you're you're a very delightful person to be around. And we were playing. At, I don't know if you remember this at Pepperdine. We were at Northwestern. We were at Pepperdine on the road, and you and I went down and played on the beach. And I think we were in Venice Beach, and we wanted to just get a workout. And we were playing. Both of us were still playing a lot, and. You, at the time, like, you're a terrific outside shooter, but that was a learned skill for you, and you got a lot better shooting, you know, as we got older. And I think so, somebody drived and kicked you the ball. You were, like, several feet behind the three-point line, and you made it. And some guy on the other team says, no, no, that was a two. And you were like, no, no, that's a three. It should be a four. And they're, and I, I just, like, it never left my mind. Like I was like, who is this person that just showed up? And it was, it's you. And so, it's so out of edge. character, the out edge. of character.
2: Well, it there is something about playing basketball that has made me, uh, and, 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 and I won't say it at Princeton, I didn't have that edge. And you and I have talked about this. It wasn't until I had children that I developed this edge that you have to have to sort of be the protector and the provider. And it's almost embarrassing because it comes out when I'm playing in a friendly pickup game on Venice Beach, which should be the most fun thing to do. Because you're being nice. Because there was a lot of other talking yeah, and I stuff know, going on. Good.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a family <laughs> podcast. Yes.
2: Yeah, right. 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 But that that is, it, and it's something that's kind of. I'm glad I have it. it served, it's served. It has served me well over the years. Because you're you're right. I'm I'm I I hope that I am delightful in most social settings but every now and then you have to stick up for your friends and your family and yourself and you need to have that edge but it has to be genuine it cannot be forced because you know if it's if it's forced
1: people who do have an edge can sniff it out just like dogs can Mm -hmm. right and i would imagine you know you have a lot, a number of very close friends, you know, from Princeton and from your time here and, you know, that the, the edge comes in certain moments, but around friends, around closest, your closest friends, um, you know, it's it's an opportunity for all of us to sort of, and that's, I think, one of the benefits of playing on a team. We all get a chance to call each other out on a little bit because, you know, I mean, we've all got our little things. But t- tell me a little bit about, you know, some of your teammates and and, and how you've stayed in touch and also about you know, how you, and I think that's one of the things about going to a school like Princeton and playing on a team that doesn't get, it's hard to put your finger on it. Yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. Now you, 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 we talked about John Rogers. Now he's somebody who we call each other to check in and, uh, you know, he has done a lot of work at the white house for my brother-in-law and my sister. And, uh, you know, um, so he's, he's, in a in, in a group by himself, but then there are the the guys who I played with a lot, who I, uh, I I see more now that I live in the area than I did when I was out west. But and you're in New Jersey now. I, I, I'm in New Jersey now, so there is a, a a proclivity of running into guys. I can come back for the alumni banquet and the golf outing, and so I see guys more often. But um, Steve Mills was a s- junior when I was a freshman along with Randy Melville. And I mentioned Rahman Kareem, who was a senior who was a a senior. He was in John Rogers class when I was a freshman. And William Murphy and I he went out for the team, didn't make the team, but always went out for the team and was a basketball player. And Steve Mills, Another guy, Steve Williams, who is since deceased. William Murphy and myself had a DJ crew on campus, so we DJ parties together. We all are on a group did you guys chat. Have a name? We, it was called the Playboy Crew. <laughs> that was our name, and we were we were very proud of that name and group. That's great. <laughs> but we did, you know, parties all over campus in eating clubs and mm-hmm. everywhere, student center. And we are still very close. Some thirty years later, and during these playoffs right now, we have a group ch- uh, a group text where we're going back and forth, talking about the game, talking about life, and you know, I, it's it's ironic that I'm here today because I was just reminiscing about playing b- basketball at Princeton and Murph, who I was saying was is still salty that he didn't make the team and the fact that we he didn't have the same group of memories that we had regarding the team and it was at that point that I realized I was like look it was because of Princeton that we are all friends right now and dear friends close friends any one of us would drop what we're doing to go and help the other and so th- those are the types of relationships that you develop over the years. So that's one group. And then there's another group of guys who you don't stay in contact as much. You know, I played with Gordon Enderley, who I talked to two or three times a year. Rich Simkus, um, you know, I live not too far from Jeff Pagano. And, and, you know, and then I meet you working and we develop this great friendship and it just you know neil crystal i would see at the uh final four every year yeah, i Lins mean it's Redding, just not too far away yeah and and these are just princeton basketball guys because there's some princeton football and, and and guys who played other sports that i stay uh in in touch with rick giles being one who played he graduated in 83 played football at at princeton so um and and I could go on and on. I mean, I don't I don't want to name too many because I'm probably leaving somebody out who deserves to be mentioned.
1: But it is. I think we, we got what we needed with the Playboy crew. That's it. So I'm <laughs> going to see Steve later, and that's going to come up. But it, it is. It it's it just you know
2: when as I've gotten older, you know, it's just more important to have those warm feelings when you talk about your friends in the past and not have this sort of bitter thing hanging over us. And while we always tease coach Kirill about the things he said to us uh, and how we thought they they were the meanest things ever. And now of course there's revisionist history. He always claims that he never said anything. And it's interesting how he does that. Now my mom does that. It's like everybody who's older than me forgets all about the, the things they said they were negative, but and it was all because of of, you know, Coach Carrill and Princeton basketball and
1: it's uh, funny how he does that. He can remember the score of the football game that he coached when he was J V football coach. And yeah. The, but he, he doesn't remember that he uh, you know
2: he doesn't remember calling me Father Time. <laughs> Actually, Grandfather Time. Yeah. Father Time was Neil Crystal, because uh, he got tired, and and I got tired more than Neil did. So he called me Grandfather
1: Time. So now that we're talking about Coach, and maybe we can finish on this. How about a, a, a you know again family podcast? Um, a, a, a Coach Carol story.
2: Oh, it's not possible yeah. on a family podcast.
1: <laughs> well, I, <laughs> it's, it's
2: it's not possible to I mean the, the what what I will say about Coach Carrill and and all joking aside, um, he is outside of my dad when it came to showing you how to work at your craft. You know, my dad gave me the work ethic, how you just have to work hard. And you always think, or I did, thought I was working hard until I came to Princeton and realized that what leadership is, is taking someone like me who thought he was doing something hard and showing him how he could do it harder and be better at it. Mm -hmm. And I think that as much as we talk about the Coach Carrill stories and uh, things he said and did um, we don 't talk enough about how m- how much better we all got as basketball players and people playing for coach Carrillo. and I wanted to e- emphasize that people part because we 've all been able to take that work ethic and be
1: successful at something else and um I think that stands out i mean again, another story I remember uh, that you and I have talked about with um your dad was. Your coach really respected your dad, and he came one time. And I don't think he came too often. And Coach was <clears throat> on the court maybe with a lit cigar. And yeah.
2: Well, that's a, that, a that's a that's a good story. But I'm glad you brought that up because that is a family friendly story. And you know everyone knows that Coach Carroll used very colorful language all the time on the court. It didn't matter who was in the gym. And, um, you know, Coach Carrillo had been to my house in my living room, met my dad, and you could not say a bad thing to him about my dad. Yeah. And I think Coach Carrill treated me with a great deal of uh, um, what I want to say. He, he treated me with a great deal of respect because of my dad. Well,
1: he had a connection to people like your dad and you um, because it was not too uh, different from his uh, upbringing. You know, son of a Bethlehem steelmaker. So um, he knew hard work and he knew
2: sacrifice more than anything. And uh, one of the guys I mentioned, Gordon Enderley, who was playing alongside, we were on the same team, and, and he's a forward on one side and I'm a forward on the other side. Which side were you on? Uh, oh, well, you know what side I was on because Gordon was left handed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, your right side. So I was on the left side of the court so I could dribble to the middle with when my right hand. Yeah. And he was on the left side on Did the right side of the left court. To right deficiency
1: <laughs> or a right to left. I forget.
2: <laughs> oh, man. And 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 so he was about to he was so mad at Gordon. But my dad, who never came to many games, I mean, he came to one game a year. And he would come on a weekend where he could watch—he'd come on Thursday, watch Thursday, watch Friday, Saturday, and go back home on Sunday, driving to Chicago, to and from Chicago. So my dad is sitting in the bleachers—actually, he's sitting in a chair at practice, which never happened because no one ever got to watch practice. And and Coach is furious with Gordon, and he walks over to Gordon and says— now, Gordon, am I going to have to get on you with Mr. Robinson sitting? No, he said with Craig's dad sitting over there. You don't want me to go off with Craig's dad over there, do you? And it his, was one of those that— His ears were shaking. It was—you could see Gordon, he was, he, his face turns flush, and after practice— uh, everyone came up and, and they said, "Hey, Craig, can your dad come to practice more often? Because <laughs> Coach
1: Kirill really is chilled when yeah, he's when he's, when he's there." <laughs> yeah. Well, that says a lot about your dad, as we know. Um, well, anything you want to add, Craig?
2: No, I. You know. Mitch, I mean, you—you've known me a long time, and and you know how I feel about Princeton and uh, and the experience that can be had here, uh, and it's just one of those special places, um, ir- irrespective of Princeton basketball. But Princeton basketball is a great conduit to the rest of the university, and to be able to come back now and be in in those reunions that I thought I'd never be in <laughs> when I was first here the old guys reunion uh it's just fun to be able to come back and and share some time with you and the former other former players and and get to know my daughter's class it's just um uh, it's just a real treat, and I'm I'm happy you're doing these podcasts because I cannot wait to hear the guys you're gonna have come up
1: after me. This is this is just a great idea, and thanks for having me. Well, you're welcome. This is a tough act to follow, but um, you've gotten us started off in the right way, and we're um, I'm thrilled that you you've got you made time for this, and and that uh, we could spend some time together here at
0: Princeton. Thanks a lot, Craig. My pleasure. <laughs>